we are going to be diving into a new series today. After over a year in Hebrews, we are finally starting a new series called Gospel Justice in Suburbia. If you have not grabbed any of these, grab some on your way out. Uh, they're a great uh, um, A for you, but also to hand out to anybody that you would want to invite to this series. Uh, we're actually going to start today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Shandis is going to be reading for us, so if she'll come on up, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and she is going to be reading that to get us to start it. Good morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks, Shandis. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad to have you. We are looking at, as we start this new sermon series, a sermon entitled Gospel Is, Gospel Does, that comes from this passage in Ephesians we've just looked at. What I'd like to do is I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to spend some time not only exploring this passage, but setting up where we're going to be for the next month and a half or so in this sermon series. So, would you join with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. God, we thank you uh, that we have the, the written word, the scriptures given to us to teach us and instruct us and challenge us and correct us. And God, ultimately to, to bring us closer to you. And God, for myself and for every person in here, there's somewhere in our lives where we need to be challenged and shaped and corrected. And so I ask God that you would help our defenses to fall down. You'd give us soft and teachable hearts. God, would you help me to only speak that which is in line of the truth of your word. And God, I pray more than just um, our minds and even more than our hearts. God, I pray for our hands to be put to work, God, that you would uh, use not only today, but these next weeks to really inspire and empower us toward works of service, towards loving the least of these and for being involved in ways from, from, from caring for the poor or caring for the orphan. God, in whatever way you call us to, God, we want to be uh, put to good work good works that flow out of a gospel heart. Pray for our time together today, and we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. There are, um, there are a few things I feel like I just know for certain. And one of those things I know for certain is if you've got a bunch of people together, different ages, different races, different uh, socioeconomic status, different religious backgrounds, whatever diversity you want to pull people together, uh, they're going to disagree on 99 things out of 100. But I think the one thing that they would all agree on is this. The world is a broken and messed up place. We disagree about a lot, but I think most everybody on planet Earth would agree that things are not as they should be. Things are messed up. Things are broken. There's a lot of heartbreak. There's a lot of injustice. Our culture is having a lot of conversations right now about issues of justice. And so let me just give you a few months worth of sampling. I'm not even talking about the last year. I'm certainly not talking about the last 10 years. I'm certainly not talking about the last 300 years. I'm just going to talk about the last few months, give you a few things out of the headlines that we've been talking about as a culture to set the tone for why we're investigating these things in the scriptures. Go back to June of this year, just in June, a few months ago. Widespread outrage erupted over the sentencing of a young man who was convicted of felony sexual assault against an unconscious woman. And the reason for the outrage is that despite the fact that he was convicted in a court of law, a crime being, again, felony sexual assault, the sentencing judge gave an unusually low sentence of six months of prison time, and even that was shortened. You don't have to do much Googling to find people who are serving longer prison sentences for stealing a cell phone, much less, again, sexual assault against an unconscious woman. In, an un, in a country where some people are serving decades of prison time for crimes which might seem less devastating to the victim than sexual assault, this sentence 
really had the, the feel of injustice and preferential treatment given to someone because of wealth, upper class, status, and even race. Uh, an online petition, which has, I checked it this week, 1.3 million signatures. So this is no small deal. This is widespread conversation in our culture. 1.3 million signatures. This petition has a statement that says, they're, they're asking for the judge to be recalled. They says this judge failed to see that the criminal is a white, that the fact that the criminal is a white male star athlete at a prestigious university does not entitle him to leniency. This judge also failed to send the message that sexual assault is against the law regardless of social class, race, gender, or other factors. Please help rectify this travesty to justice. There's our word. Go back to September, just a month ago. News came out on Tuesday, September 6th, that loyalist forces in the nation of Syria, those who are loyal to the, 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 power, the, the regime that's in power in Syria, dropped bombs on the neighborhood of Sukari, a rebel-held neighborhood in Syria's capital city of Aleppo. But it was no mere bombing, just, you know, your ordinary average bombing. No, this was a bombing in which they dropped barrels of chlorine out of helicopters and detonated them over the neighborhood, injuring over a hundred civilians, including several dozen children. CNN reports one eyewitness is saying, when I arrived at the market, I started seeing injured people and noticed that something was unusual. The injuries, the injured did not have signs of injuries or blood, but instead were coughing loudly and had red, teary eyes. From 300 meters away, I could smell it, and I realized it was a chlorine bomb. And the the real tragedy out of this is that that is one of literally thousands of stories to come out of that region of the world over the last several years. The, 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 the civil war that's raging there in Syria that like virtually nobody understands exactly what's going on and who's fighting against whom and all of the other nations that have gotten invested and are now supporting this rebel group or this other rebel group or supporting the regime that's in power. It's created a humanitarian crisis that according to groups like World Vision, they say the likes of which have never been seen in human history. There are millions upon millions of innocent civilians who just want to live their lives, who just want to raise a family, fleeing the country, fleeing to neighboring countries, fleeing to Greece, fleeing to Turkey, even fleeing to the United States of America, looking for somewhere to live because they are now refugees. They don't have a home. One more. Monday, October 3rd. This is just from earlier this month. Monday, October 3rd, a seven-year-old girl. Seven-year-old girl. Some of you just served in children's ministry during the last service, and now you're attending this one. Seven-year-old girl. Fed herself, dressed herself, and got on the bus to school. While she was on the bus, she told the bus driver that she was not able to wake up her parents that morning. The bus driver contacted the school administration. The school administration asked her some more questions. They called the police. They called Child Protective Services, and they went to the girl's home. And when they got there, they found the parents lying dead on the floor, surrounded by drug paraphernalia. This is in Pennsylvania, other side of the country. It's a few weeks ago. They didn't just find the parents dead on the floor with drug paraphernalia, by the way. They also found a five-year-old boy, a three-year-old boy, and a nine-month-old baby girl at home by themselves. Well, the seven-year-old had to get herself dressed, feed herself and them, and get herself off to school. State stepped in. They were taken into state's custody. Thankfully, they were placed with some relatives. But now these children have to navigate life with that stamp of orphan. We don't have mom and dad with us anymore. Who's going to advocate for them? Who's going to protect them? Who's going to provide for them? Who's going to keep them safe? Friends, the Bible is unflinchingly honest about the brokenness of the world. I, 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 I'm, I'm under no illusion that some of you probably woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to go to church and hear about Jesus and feel really good. Um, And I can gauge the temperature in the room as well. I'm here present with you. 
Friends, the Bible is unflinchingly honest about the brokenness of the world. God is unflinchingly honest about the brokenness of the world. We, as the people of God, sometimes shy away from the brokenness of the world, don't we? It can be hard. It can be heavy. There's other things to think about. There's other things to talk about. There's a football game on today. There's verses about joy and happiness. Can we look at those verses? I'm of the opinion that to not look as the Bible does, to not look as God does, to look evil and brokenness and heartache and injustice in the eye, not only does that mean we're not truly following Jesus, but we're also being robbed of the joy that comes of seeing the goodness of our Savior on the other side. So if you will, jump in. Jump in. I'll just say this right at the beginning here. Beginning of today, beginning of this series, my sincere hope is to make every single one of us uncomfortable at some point. It's my gift to you. I love you. Because if, if the, the Bible is true, and if we're all sinful, and if we're all flawed, if we're all broken, if, if the Bible doesn't make us uncomfortable at some point, well, then it, it might not be the Bible we're believing, but our own press. So we're going to talk about brokenness. We're going to talk about where is God and why does he care or what, what's he doing about any of this or what should we do about any of this. But, but the point where we have to start is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's our big idea for today. Let me, let me say it to you this way. God cares deeply about broken communities, situations, and people so much that he sent Jesus to be our redeemer. And the more that God's people understand and embrace this gospel message, the more they will be compelled to act, give, and serve in a redemptive way. You see the, you see the two sides of that? God cares deeply, and he cares so much that he sent his only son. And because he has sent his son, because Jesus has died and risen again, the more we understand that, the more we grasp that, the more we will be compelled in love and service toward others. So, Gospel justice in suburbia, talking about issues of justice. It's a buzzword. It's all over the news. It's all over the internet. It's everywhere. It's in water cooler conversations around the office. Speaking to some of you that, you know, you work a job, people are talking about these things in the office. Let's talk about, first of all, what is justice? And admittedly, it's a hard word to define with precision. Scholars, sociologists, ethicists, uh, people in universities, they wrestle with What is the definition of justice? Let me do my very best to present to you a biblical picture of what justice is. And there's five main things I want you to see about justice. The first one is this. Justice is, the starting point, yes, is equal measures, equal treatment. The idea being, when you'd go to the market in the ancient world, somebody would would weigh out your grain or weigh out your produce, and and sometimes they would try to cheat you, and they put little weights in it, and and things would be imbalanced. In the Bible, the, the, the word justice carries this connotation of the scales being even. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. That's the strongest word in the Old Testament for something that God just detests. It's like a sin plus. It's an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So God delights in fairness, in justness, in equality. A just weight. You see our word there, justice, just. It doesn't just mean equal weights, equal measures, equal standards. It means equal treatment. Leviticus 24, 22, the people of Israel have just come out of Egypt. They've been rescued out of slavery in Egypt and God is giving them his law and he's, he's telling them all these laws and he kind of wraps it up. He says, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native for I am the Lord your God. On this issue of the sojourner specifically, God says, remember you were sojourners in Egypt. You want to treat the sojourners the way you would want to be treated. But he says, you don't, you don't get to have two sets of rules. If someone wants to move in and be a part of your community, you're going to welcome them in and you're going to treat them the same. You're going to have the same laws. In fact, there's specific prohibitions against uh, making the sojourner or making the foreigner work on the Sabbath while you take a day off. Everybody gets a day off for rest and for worship. We think on the side of justice, equal measures, equal treatment. Sometimes we can think um, in terms of retributive justice, meaning uh, a punishment for a crime. Look what it says in Leviticus 24, uh, 19 through 20, just a few verses earlier. 
If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, some people who don't like the Bible, some people who don't like, uh, they're skeptical of the Bible, they don't follow Jesus, they don't believe in God, they, they look at verses like that and say, oh, isn't that barbaric? Isn't that primitive? Look at all that eye for an eye language. Shouldn't we, you know, turn the other cheek? But you need to understand that this is revolutionary. Because prior to this, this law code being given by God, what's to stop you from exacting not just equity, but revenge? Anybody know what I'm talking about? We, we, we go towards one-upsmanship, right? Somebody slaps you across the face, well, then you can punch them in the nose. Somebody, you know, brings a knife, you show up with a bazooka, right? We, we, we're good at one-upsmanship. Any of you who have ever been parents or worked with children know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, they spit toothpaste on me, so what did you do? I roundhouse kicked him in the head. Like, this is where we're, we're prone to go as humans. We don't just want equity, we actually want to uh, go one-up, But God says in his word, no, God says the punishment must fit the crime. It's got to be equitable. It's got to be just. Think about how much we take that for granted. The United States of America, the law code says the punishment must fit the crime. Where did we get that idea from? God. It's from God. People are like, that's just common sense. It wasn't, and it still isn't, if you just let human nature run its course. So the starting point for justice, yes, it's equity, fairness, but it's more than that. Number two, justice is inseparable from righteousness. You can't separate justice from righteousness. I'll say more about this a little later, but but some people are prone to be more activistic, and they want to do justice. Some people are prone to be more pietistic, and they want to read their Bibles and study and worship God and pray. And in the Bible, you can't separate those two. You cannot separate holy living before God with holy living before other people. I'll give you just a few examples. Deuteronomy 16, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Or to give you another example in 1 Kings 10, this is amazing because this comes from the lips of a non-Israelite. This is Sheba, the queen of Sheba, I should say, a foreigner, uh, a queen from a, a nation in Africa, comes and visits King Solomon in the splendor of his temple. She's f- just blown away by what she sees, and so she blesses God and she blesses Solomon. She says, blessed be the Lord your God, Lord Yahweh, that's the covenant personal name of God, by the way who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel. He made you king so that you may, here it is, execute justice and righteousness. Those two words tied together. The third thing I want you to see about justice is that it's inherently relational. Justice has to be relational. Now here's a part where I'm going to disagree with our United States system of of justice. We say justice is blind, right? Justice is blind. And I think what that means is, again, not showing partiality, but that's not the biblical picture. Justice is not blind. Justice is relational. Justice is not a a set of laws that you pass and a set of politicians or governors that you put into place and then they'll just execute justice. No, justice is life-on-life, face-to-face relationship with people in broken situations. I'll show you. Job 29. Job is suffering. He's hurting. He's kind of processing out loud, more or less. And he's kind of defending himself. He's talking about the good things. Why am I suffering? I've done good things. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. He got blessed by someone who was about to die. He helped somebody and they blessed him. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. How would he know that? If he wasn't in relationship with these people, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. By the way, notice justice and righteousness again in parallelism there. So justice is not abstract. When we talk about social justice, many in our culture immediately think of government programs, you know, laws, regulations. No, when we speak about justice, church, Christian, we're talking about relationships. Number four, that stretched some of you. This is going to stretch others of you. Number four, justice is not just pure equity, not just pure fairness, but it goes beyond that, giving extra for vulnerable groups. Biblical justice 
is not just, well, we just, everything's fair, everything's equally treated, we gave the same amount to everybody. No, that's not actually a true biblical definition of justice. A biblical definition of justice looks at those who are disadvantaged and goes above and beyond for them. I could give you dozens of examples. Let me give you two. Proverbs 31.8, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And Zechariah 7, one of the Old Testament prophets, thus says the Lord of hosts. Whenever a prophet starts with that, the Lord of hosts, that's armies, that's commander-in-chief language, that's, hey, listen up, this is the dude who runs the whole show. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Judgment in the, in the Hebrew, that's the same word for justice, mishpat. It's the same word. Render true judgments or render true justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, I'm sorry, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This refrain of the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor has been uh, a, a, a term has been coined by one uh, philosopher. He called it the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. You see this show up over and over and over, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures, but again in the New. The, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. The widow, let's look at these real quick. The widow is vulnerable for, for multiple reasons. Number one, a female. <clears throat> in particular, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when patriarchy was the norm, Women did not have property rights. If you were a woman, you were given in marriage, you might receive a dowry or a financial gift. And, and if your husband died, you know what would happen? All of the property and all the inheritance would go to the male sons. It's not like in today where you can leave your will, your wife is your primary beneficiary. Nope, it's the law of the land was the sons get it. So maybe you had that dowry, maybe it would last you for a while, but there's no guarantee, first of all, that you'd even get a dowry because maybe you came from a poor family. Second of all, even if you got a dowry, there's no guarantee it's gonna last you for the rest of your life. And so you were at the mercy of your sons, your, your male offspring to care for you and provide for you. How many of you know, sometimes people have bad sons? I've heard of it happening. Vulnerable because of being a female, vulnerable because of being aged. The, the latter years of life, there's not the same physical strength, the physical stamina, mental energy, all of those things. Vulnerable for all of those reasons to be taken advantage of. The fatherless or the orphan, they're vulnerable because they're a child. They're physically weak. They don't have the benefits of education or a job or a means to provide for themselves. They can't protect themselves. Now their parents are dead and this is the one who can't even care for themselves. They're vulnerable today. They are even more vulnerable in the ancient world. The poor. The poor are mentioned. How many of you know that being poor is more than being penniless? It's powerless. If someone is rich and they come into hard times, maybe they get accused of a crime or something like that. What do they do? They hire the most expensive lawyers and they can provide for themselves while they fight through those challenges. Somebody who's rich, they come upon hard times, they lose their job. Well, they probably got a stockpile or if nothing else, maybe they've got other rich friends who got money and can share with them and help them. But the poor, the economically disadvantaged, are in a particular place of vulnerability. And the sojourner, the wanderer, the alien, the refugee, the, the, the one who has left their home seeking refuge, seeking asylum in another part of the world, for whatever reason, that sojourner, that word wanderer, it, it's different translations render it different ways. It's a wide-ranging word, but it means somebody who's left their home and they're looking to establish a new home. The refugee, the alien, the wanderer is particularly vulnerable because they don't have anything established and they are at the mercy of those who are established to welcome them in and provide them with opportunities. Maybe they want to work hard. Maybe they want to come in and, and, and get a job and contribute, but if they're not opened up to from those who are in the establishment community, well, then they're not going to make it, will they? Here's what's amazing about the quartet of the vulnerable. And here's what's, I should say it differently. Here's what's amazing about the God of the Bible is that he says that he uniquely identifies with this group of people. 
God uniquely identifies with this group of people. Look at Proverbs 14, 31. It says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Did you know that your relationship to the poor is a key indicator of your relationship to God himself? Did you know that God's disposition, as it were, uh, is, is such as your disposition towards those who are vulnerable? That's Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is you know, commending. He's talking about the end of the age and when judgment happens. And he says he's commending these people. He says, you, you came, you visited me in prison. You gave me clothes. You gave me water to drink. You gave me food. And the people are confused. The righteous are confused. They say, when did, we, when did we see any of that? When did we come visit you in prison? When did we see you naked and give you clothes? When did we see you hungry and give you food? When did we see you thirsty and give you water? And Jesus answers to them and says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. Let me step on some more toes while I'm out here. Um, what's the saying? If you're on thin ice, you might as well dance. You might come as, well, well, but I thought God loves all people. I thought he cares for all people. He does. He does. There's verses about that. God so loved the world, loved all people. Absolutely. But there is no verse in the Bible where God says, you need to speak up for the adult male with money. <laughs> Not one. Not one. Why? Well, because that, that's not a person who's in a place of disadvantage. Biblical justice speaks out for those who are at a place of disadvantage. One of the ways I see this playing out in our current cultural climate is the conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement or maybe more specifically the Black Lives Matter sentiment. Just eliminate the movement. People respond with, well, all lives matter, which is absolutely true. But God says, stand up for the poor. Stand up for the vulnerable, for the oppressed, for the orphan, for the widow. Nobody's disagreeing that God loves all people, but what God is saying is, I am identifying uniquely with those who are in a position of vulnerability. And so that's why just turning it back to, well, all lives matter. That's not really helpful because there's a group of people in our society who are saying, hey, there's been some real injustice and we need to address those things. You tracking with me, church? I told you I'd make you all uncomfortable at some point here. God doesn't say don't oppress all lives. He says don't oppress widows, orphans, the refugee, the poor. Number five, the last thing we need to see biblically about justice is this. Justice is a starting point. Love is the goal. Justice is a baseline. Justice is a baseline. What God really wants is love. Well, we need to make sure everything is fair and equal treatment and justice. We need to pass laws. We need to get our communities organized. That's all fine and good, but don't lose the forest for the trees. Do you know what God actually wants? He wants your heart to be moved with love and compassion towards those who are broken. It's not about passing laws and legislations. Some of you more activistically minded. Let me step on your toes for a minute. I don't care how many signatures you get on your petition. Do you actually care deep in your heart for people? Don't divorce yourself from people. Don't hand it off to the federal government. Don't hand it off and say, well, it's, you know, we need these systems in place. No, who do you know? Whose life are you involved in that you're pouring yourself out for in Love. Justice is a starting point. Love is the goal. Psalm 33, the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. He loves justice. God loves justice, but the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That word steadfast love is chesed in the, in the Hebrew. It's a multifaceted it's a hard to translate word because it means so much more than what we have in our English language. Steadfast love, faithful love, committed love. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That word kindness there, that's chesed again. 
to love love, to love kindness, his loving kindness, his mercy. Then you jump to the New Testament, James 2.13. This is fascinating. I don't want to bore you with a bunch of word studies, but I was comparing when they translated the Old Testament into the language of the New Testament, some of these words that they used to capture those same ideas of chesed. One of them is, is the word for mercy. And the author of James, James, brother of Jesus, says, judgment without mercy is given to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says there, Mercy, it's chesed or grace, love, loving kindness. That is greater than judgment and justice. It's actually better. God loves justice. God wants fairness. But do you know what God loves even more? Mercy. Which leads us back to our passage, our primary verse for today. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Look back in verse 8. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of, what's the word, Sound City? Not a result of works. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's love. This is God's chesed in action. We can see a few things really clearly from this passage. The first thing is this. We need to be saved. (laughs) For by grace you have been saved. Oh, I guess that means I need to be saved. Yes, you do need to be saved. I need to be saved. We all need to be saved. What do we need to be saved from? Oh, here's where it gets interesting. According to the Bible, we are all both the oppressed and the oppressor. According to the Bible, we are both the oppressed and the oppressor. We are the oppressed. The Bible says that we lie under the power of sin. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the the prince of this world, the devil, that that we have been oppressed. How many of you, don't, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever had someone hurt you? Have ever had someone mistreat you? Have ever had someone take advantage of you? We've been oppressed, haven't we? We need rescue. We need salvation. However, the Bible would also say that we have each broken God's laws of justice that we ourselves have taken advantage of others, that we ourselves have used people instead of serving people, that we are also the oppressor. And you need to think of yourself in both lights, that we, as oppressors, stand under God's righteous judgment. Again, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have only ever treated people perfectly every single moment of every day of your life? You want to stand before God and have that conversation face to face? I don't think so. We are both the oppressed and the oppressor. We see that we need to be saved and we see that we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. What's interesting is to use the analogy of of the widow or the orphan. The orphan can't adopt themselves, can they? The orphan can do all that they can do. They They can... You know, present themselves nice before the family, get dressed up in their nice clothes, brush their teeth, comb their hair, stand before the potential adoptive parents, but they can't force that person to adopt them. The sojourner, the foreigner, they can't force the community to welcome them in and accept them in, can they? They're dependent upon the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of someone else. Friends, we cannot save ourselves. That's the good news of the gospel, in fact, is that we can't save ourselves. The the bad news of religion is you're in a bad place with God. Here are 10 things to do so that God won't be angry with you anymore. I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but it is true. That is the difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion or system of faith in the world. Every other system of belief, every other system of faith says, here's how you are going to work hard to get right with God, whereas the Bible says you couldn't do enough to get right with God, so God came and found you. He sent his son, Jesus, to save you, which is the third thing we see in this passage, that grace is a gift. Grace is a gift that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And he went to the cross to die on our behalf, in our place as a substitute. And what's more, friends, he rose from the grave on the third day. He's alive. Jesus is alive, friends. Proving that everything he said was true. Not only does his death free us as the oppressed 
We no longer live under the power of Satan. We no longer live under the power of sin. We are free men and women. Is that good news? But the other side of that is as oppressors, Christ's death on the cross perfectly satisfies God's justice. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's justice. But through the shedding of his blood, Jesus paid it all. And we are now forgiven and free and we're able to be looked at as though we were as perfect as Jesus himself. Is that good news to anybody this morning? That is the message of the gospel. The gospel means good news. Think about this. News is not something that you do. I mean, unless maybe you had a really wild weekend and you ended up in the news, but the news is something you hear. The news is something you receive. You don't do the news. We must remember that the gospel is to be received, not something we do. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of works. Say it with me, Sound City. Not of works. But the verse doesn't end there. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, what does it say, Sound City? Good works. Oh my goodness. Uh, Any of you grew up in the church and you memorized these verses? I was talking with somebody. uh, They memorized it in the King James. I think I did too. But we stopped at verse 9. We just did verses 8 and 9. We didn't do verse 10. And I'm like, that's a a drag because they're connected. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are good works to be done. They just don't contribute to your salvation. They're in response to your salvation. You tracking with me? There are good works to be done. There are acts of kindness and love and justice and mercy to be done. They just don't earn you any brownie points with God. No, they show that your heart has truly grasped the magnitude of the gospel that you've received. A heart that has truly grasped the gospel will want to do good works, not to try to earn God's love, but in response to it. Is that good news? Is that helpful? Now, I want to share with you, because we have a little bit of family history as the United States of America, where we've, we've kind of gotten into some skirmishes over the years about this, about this verse in particular, about this passage and how we should approach it. So let me just give briefly a little bit of family history that can help set some context. After the Civil War, uh, the United States entered into a basically unprecedented era of prosperity. We have railways going all the way across the country now. We've got factories starting to crop up. We've got unprecedented um, new you know, technologies and things that are uh, helping build the infrastructure of the country. We've got factories, coal mining, oil, all this sort of stuff. And so people start getting richer. People start having more prosperity. We start seeing a lot of economic success, but we also see a great chasm. And so while some were experiencing success and prosperity, others were uh, really hurting, really struggling. And if you ever read, um, there's a particular book I had to read in college called uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. It's a classic. Anybody read A good number of you. Man, if you wanted to be depressed, read that book. Um, if, if your Seattle emo music isn't doing it for you now, read that book and you'll be very sad for a while. But it just describes these deplorable conditions that many people were, were living and working under. And so there were a certain group of Christians who, who started to see these things. They said, man, we need to, we need to put our, our, our faith into action. And so this group of Christians kind of became known as the social gospel group. Not necessarily a term that they adopted for themselves, but just kind of a word that, that others would start to use about them. The social gospel group. The social gospel group was influenced by things like modernism and, and liberalism. They use that term politically, like political liberalism, or uh, maybe even philosophical liberalism, the idea that everything is getting better, everything's heading in an upward direction. And so if we just put our minds to it, if we just got enough resources and energy, we could solve all of these problems. And so that's what they were influenced by. And they started getting to work. We need to care for the poor, and we need to open up orphanages, and we need to open up soup kitchens. And they really started doing this stuff. There was leaders, men like uh, Washington Gladden, who was uh, particularly an advocate for workers' rights. He also was a right, uh, an advocate for the rights of black Americans and for desegregation. Or Walter Rauschenbusch. I think I'm saying that right. I'm probably not very German. But uh, he lived in a neighborhood in New York known as Hell's Kitchen, 
which was named Hell's Kitchen because it wasn't a very nice place to live. And he started uh, doing all sorts of advocacy work for the poor and the marginalized in his community. He was started out as a revival preacher, but really moved into this aspect of social justice. Now, there's, there's, there's one problem that really cropped up during this time. And the problem is this, the rejection of biblical Christian orthodoxy. Many of the proponents of the social justice, social gospel movement, I should say, because they were influenced by modernism and intellectualism and um, philosophical liberalism, they started to reject some of the more, shall we say, supernatural elements from the Bible. They started to reject things like, well, maybe we don't believe that Jesus is you know, divine and the son of God. And maybe we don't believe he really atoned for everyone's sin. And, but we still need to help all these people. And so they really, unfortunately, lost the gospel part of the social gospel. They were doing the works. They were helping people's physical lives, but they were not focused on their eternal lives. So as we Americans are prone to do, another group reacted. <laughs> And and a a group of, which I'll call the personal gospel folks, reacted to the social gospel folks. And it was a response to uh, liberalism and response to uh, the social gospel. Yeah, sure, they're helping people, but they've forgotten about Jesus and he died on the cross. And this really kind of took two two forks, this personal gospel. There was was one fork, kind of the holiness revival tradition. This is where churches like the Pentecostal church come from, where people were really focused on uh, personal holiness. Personal holiness. I want to be holy before God. I want to be passionate before God, this revival movement. I'm going to pray for nine hours a day, and then I'm going to go and preach the gospel on the streets 22 hours a day, and you know it's like not even that many hours a day. Well, God's a miracle worker. He can do it, right? And just this kind of holiness revival sort of stream. And another stream that kind of launched out of that was more of the, we'll call it the fundamentalist or the evangelical stream. And I know that the word evangelical, uh, it's just the, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. So it just means a gospel person, a gospel Christianity. But it's obviously taken on some different meaning throughout the years. Fundamentalist, I mean, that's basically a curse word. Fundamentalist, right? But, but originally, the word fundamentalist just means, hey, we want to focus on the basics. We want to focus on the foundations, right? Um, if anybody's done sports or athletics, like, you're going to drill on the fundamentals. You fundamentalists! Like, no, you want to focus on what's at the basics. And so these groups, they gathered together in the late 1800s, and they identified, here's our five fundamentals. The inerrancy of Scripture, the divinity of Jesus, the virgin birth, Jesus' substitutionary death. And then number five is Jesus' physical resurrection and return. Which I'm like, hey, that's two, which means it's six, not five. But I guess you're not fundamentalist with math. That's fine. Um, So there are these kind of two streams. Remember how I said earlier, you can't separate justice from righteousness? Do Do you see the gulf that's happening here? Do you see how some were picking one or the other? The problem with the, the personal gospel crowd really was escapism. It really is escapism and and even avoidance. We can't deal with the problems of the world. It's all going to burn. It's all going to hell. So let's just pull back, retreat, have revival meetings, and not really address the, the needs of others. Now, I'm speaking, obviously, in broad strokes. Not everyone from the social gospel movement abandoned the gospel, and not everyone from the more fundamental uh, uh, movement didn't help anybody. But, but largely speaking, that's the divide that happened. So when we gather here today on a Sunday morning, we might be a product of one of those two streams, which, by the way, there is much division, even in the church, especially in the United States of America, to this day, largely along these lines. Are we going to be holiness and, and stick to the truth of God's word, people, or are we going to be help your fellow man, people? I don't know about you, Sound City. I'd love to be both. Do I get any men from anybody on that one? I, I'd love to be both, okay? Now, here's, let, me, let me just summarize again. These, these are the errors to avoid. By looking at the errors to avoid, we can look and, and chart a path forward. So let me just run through this. Number one, the error to avoid, turning the gospel into a command. The gospel is not a do. The gospel is what God has done for us already. Amen? Number two, another error would be that of the social, uh, social justice, social gospel movement of abandoning truth for the sake of progress. Friends, if it's truth, 
It's God's truth, and God is eternal. He doesn't change. And so I don't care what the fads are of our culture. I don't care what the whims are of the powers to be. If it's God's truth, it's truth, and it's unchanging. So we don't abandon truth because, well, that's back then, and you got to get with the times, and you want to be on the wrong side of history, and I want to be on the right side of eternity. God's truth. Number three, another error is abandoning good works for the sake of holiness. Oh, I don't know if I can go get my hands dirty. I don't, I don't really like being around people who make me uncomfortable. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to say. I'm just going to focus on living my life holy before God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. Well, actually, you know what? If you're not involved in caring for the needs of the vulnerable, then you are not, my friend, living a holy life because they can't be separated from each other that way. So it's not one or the other. It's both and. Number four, another error is reversing the order. Action before gospel. Again, some of you more activistic-minded. It's like, that's the first thing you jump to. All right, well, what are we going to do to help? What are we going to do to help? Yeah, but where's your motivation? Is your motivation in proving yourself? Is your motivation in guilt or something worse? Or is your motivation truly, I have meditated on what God has done for me in Christ Jesus, and I am compelled to pour myself out in help and service to others. And number five, it's an error to drive any wedge at all between the gospel and good works. Can we, just, can we just leave it at that? We're not saved by works, we're saved unto good works. Let's not drive a wedge there. God didn't do it. People have done it. But my prayer for Sound City Bible Church is that we would not be an either-or type of church. We would be a both-and type of church. So, with that said, let's talk for a brief minute about where we're heading. So we got this phrase, gospel justice in suburbia, okay? Why did we choose this as the series title, gospel justice in suburbia? Well, gospel, I should hope it's obvious by now, but we want the gospel to be at the center of everything we say and think and do as a church. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Justice, because the time is now. Because the time is now. It's not only the time is now for us in our culture and in our world, but the time is now for us as a church, We replanted in January of 2015. God has been just ridiculously lavish and gracious to us as a church. Uh, We've still got a lot of things we need to grow in. We, by no stretch of the imagination, are a perfect church who's got it all figured out or nailed. But guess what? God has given us resources. God has given us people. God has given us gifts. And I believe he wants us to be a blessing to the North Seattle suburbs, which leads me to our third word, in suburbia. Okay, suburbia. Ah. Shoot, now things got really hard. Okay, the suburbs were built for comfort and convenience. Nobody moves to the suburbs to change the world. People move to the suburbs to have spots to park your three cars, okay? Uh, I have friends who are, are pastors in more urban areas. I've literally had conversations with pastor friends of mine. One had their building lit on fire last month because he asked the person to not drink alcohol at 10 o'clock in the morning on the front steps of their building. The guy went and got matches, poured the alcohol, and lit their building on fire. Another pastor friend of mine told me, well, two things. Number one, he told me that he's you know, waiting in line at a coffee shop. He's got a, 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 a homeless, meth-addicted man in front of him in line at the coffee shop and two prostitutes in line behind him at the coffee shop. And then he goes back and someone was peeing on their church building. And I'm like, I don't deal with any of those things at Sound City. I, it's more about like people's feelings and things like that. <laughs> like, it's just difference between kind of urban ministry and suburban ministry, right? Um, friends, I, I'll tell you, one of the great dangers, one of the great things that I fear for our church is that we would buy into the comforts and conveniences of the suburban life over and above God's call to action to help those that he puts in our paths. And so my hope and my prayers, I know, I know that some of the problems of the world, maybe it's not as in your face in the suburbs as it is uh, in, in more urban areas, but I do believe that there are ways that we suburbanites can be involved in gospel justice in the North Seattle suburbs. Do you agree? And not only the North Seattle suburbs, but really to the ends of the earth because God has given us just some amazing opportunities. So for the next few weeks, here's the way we're going to break this down. We're actually going to organize it around the quartet of the vulnerable. So next week, we're going to talk about the poor. 
We'll talk about poverty and generosity and see how God's grace, his lavish grace, frees us to be generous. The, the week after that, we're going to talk about widows and orphans together uh, because very, very, very often in the scriptures, almost every time, orphans and widows are connected together. So we're going to deal with those together, really looking at the beginning stages of life and the ending stages of life where people are at their most vulnerable and how God's adopting grace into his family uh, frees us to seek to include others. The following week after that, we're going to talk about the gospel and race, this idea of the sojourner or the wanderer or the foreigner and how we as Christians are to view race and some of the specific racial tensions that we're going through in the United States of America. Uh, I'm pleased to invite my good friend Javon Washington. He's a pastor in Memphis, Tennessee. He's going to fly up and he's going to be speaking to us on that Sunday. Um, I love and respect and trust that man a lot. And uh, I think you're going to really benefit from what he has to say. The very next night, a Monday night, we are actually going to do a a panel discussion event where we'll have people uh, basically do a panel discussion on the issues of gospel and race, and we're going to Facebook stream it live uh, so that you guys can all participate. I was going to do it on Sunday night, but apparently the Seahawks are playing the Patriots that night, and I didn't want to compete with that, you idolaters. So anyways, we're going to do it on, we're going to do it on Monday night. We'll have some people be, yeah, you're welcome. I love you. I wanted to watch the game too. We're going to do it on Monday night. There's limited space and seating in our offices. So we'll have some people there live in the offices, but we'll broadcast it out live via Facebook stream and just really model uh, for especially, I mean, the lights aren't that low. We're a predominantly Anglo church, a lot of, a lot of whiteies. Um, and so for us to learn how to, with biblical eyes, with grace and with wisdom, how to talk about these issues of race in an extremely volatile cultural uh, Um, situation we find ourselves in. So I hope that that will be helpful to you. And then we'll wrap up by talking about the church, God's plan, God's vehicle, God's plan A to execute his justice to the nations. His plan isn't a politician. And everyone said, thank God. His plan isn't an organization or a nonprofit. God's plan is the church. And so how do we as the church live out the plan for justice that God has for us? So that's where we're heading in the next few weeks. Uh, are you excited? Are you scared? Good, we're in the, we all feel the same because I'm both excited and scared as well. Let me close with this thought. Again, all of us need to be challenged at some point. We all need to be challenged. And my commitment, the elder's commitment to you is that we are going to open this book every single week and we're going to look at what God says about these things. Not what CNN says about these things, not what BuzzFeed says about these things, what God says about these things. I'm going to seek to be gospel-centered in all that we do, be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ and then seek to respond with love and good works. And so I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you into it. Let's practice grace with each other. But let's be bold, let's be brave to wade into these murky waters because that's where Jesus is calling us. Amen? With that, I want to call us to a time of response now uh, today. And we're going to respond as we do in a variety of ways. The first way is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And I want to encourage you to give generously. If you're a guest, you're not obligated to give by by any stretch. Don't feel awkward or obligated. I would like to welcome you to give if you feel God calling you in that way. And I want you to give generously. And while they're collecting the offering, let me, let me read a few discussion questions and some things we can talk about uh, this week in our community groups and in our homes. We'll also welcome our younger students class in to join us for a time of response and worship here. Here's some things to talk about. If you were to become imbalanced, which ditch would you fall into, the social gospel or the personal gospel ditch? Are you more activistic by nature or are you more pietistic by nature? Number two, how does the gospel of Jesus empower us to care for the needs of the whole person? Spiritual, social, relational, material. You guys know that God cares about the entire person, all of who we are. And number three, what areas of mission and service and justice, etc., are you already passionate about? And where do you need your passion to be increased? Can I just say this, Sound City? I want to brag on you for a moment. You guys are involved in a lot of things that I didn't even know about or other, you know, other pastors, leaders we didn't know about. I've, I've heard uh, reports of some of you uh, serving at retirement homes, caring for widows already. I've heard some of you, uh, um, obviously there's a, a, a great number of families in, in, in this church that have taken in kids through the foster care system or have adopted. I've heard of some bringing meals to single moms. Like you guys are doing the stuff and I'm proud of you. Some of you are already excited and passionate about those things. Where has God given you that heart of passion and where do you feel like he's stirring you up towards more?
Let's talk about that in our groups this week. A couple things to pray about. Pray that God would use this series to stir our hearts in thankfulness for the gospel and toward good deeds for others. And pray that non-Christians would see the love and goodness of God through our good deeds. In just a moment, the, um, the volunteers will be passing out the elements for communion. Hold on to those for a moment. We'll take this together in just a minute. But let me, let me tell you something. Here's something new that we're going to be doing during this series. Something new. Action steps. <laughs> How about that? Let's talk about good deeds and then sit and talk about them some more. No, let's do some good deeds, okay? Here's what I'm asking you to do. Um, some weeks you'll be asked to do more or less than others. Pray about which ones God's asking you to take. But a but couple things to think about. Number one, I'd invite you to take a time of solitude and prayer and just ask God to help your heart get in the right place as we dive into this series. Um, maybe there's areas where you resist his call to action. Maybe there's areas where you're fearful and just take a time of prayer. Here's a number two action step. Share the gospel with someone. Like that's it. Like no surprise ending to that. Just share the gospel with someone. And here's what you can do. You can blame me. Oh, we're starting a new sermon series at our church and our pastor is telling all of us that we need to like practice sharing the gospel. So can I just practice with you, my, my non-Christian friend? And then they'll be like, oh, well, okay, I guess it's, if it's just practice, if you're not actually trying to tell me the gospel, then that's fine. And then you just practice sharing the gospel. Like that didn't make any sense. Like, that's good. I'll, I'll come to church. My pastor explains it better. Come with me to church and we'll do that. But just get used to getting out of your, your comfort zone and actually share the gospel with someone. And then here's number three. Here's an action step. I'm so excited about this. Talk with your community group about any local mission initiatives that you and your group want to engage in together. Back at the beginning of our year, the elder team prayed and we carved out a chunk of money and we set it aside in the budget and we said, we want to give this money to community groups who want to take action in their communities and in their neighborhoods to be a blessing. So, for those of you who are community group leaders, pay real close attention. Uh, Pastor Travis is going to be talking about it more tonight at the community group leader training. But basically, start brainstorming. God, what do you want us to do? Is there a school in our neighborhood? Is there a homeless shelter in our neighborhood? Is there some sort of organization that's seeking to do good to people? And we can come in the name of Christ Jesus, not only with manpower, but actually with some dollars. What do we as a group want to contribute? What does the church want to do? We're kind of thinking of a matching fund sort of a thing. And because of your generosity and your tithes and offerings, we actually have the money to do this. Who would like to be a blessing to their neighborhood? Who would like to be a blessing to their community? If you have questions about that, Ask your community group leader, and if you are a community group leader, I'm sorry, they're going to come ask you now. So uh, you better go to the training tonight. With that said, you should have the elements now for communion. Let me, let me do this. Let me set up what we're going to do here, and then we'll pray and we'll sing, and we'll worship God, and we'll ask him to break our hearts with the things that break his. 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also gave to you or delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By the way, friends, this is the Lord's death that satisfies the justice of God so that we can be viewed as righteous. This is the death of Jesus that breaks the bonds of oppression so that we can be free in him. That's what we're celebrating today. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that means a a prideful manner or a manner that, that doesn't think we have anything to repent of. It doesn't mean perfect. Nobody here is taking the, taking the Lord's table in a perfect manner, but a worthy manner, meaning Jesus, you are my hope. Jesus, you are my righteousness. Whoever does so in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, so let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And as we do so, Elizabeth and the team are going to lead us in a brand new song. We've never sung this one together, but it's a prayer. It's a prayer that God would rise up on behalf of the vulnerable, on behalf of the poor, and that we would actually join with him in that mission on his, on his earth and on his mission. And so I invite you to take whatever time you want or whatever time you need to pray, reflect, take the bread, take of the cup, and then stand and sing this prayer with us that God would rise up on behalf of the broken. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for how, um, God, sometimes your word, it cuts us, but it does so to heal us, that we might be remade in your image. God, I pray for all of us here today. Would we respond how you want us to respond? Would you break our hearts with the things that break yours? Would you break our hearts over the ways that we have been violators of your justice? And God, would we delight in the gospel? Would we delight in the goodness that Jesus has saved us through no works of our own, but through all his works? And let that rejoicing in the gospel compel us forward to love and good deeds. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.